Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit membership organization whose mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, discounted chess books and equipment, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you are already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. So I am welcoming to our March edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life, Al Lawrence. Al is currently the managing director of the U.S. Chess Trust, He's a former executive director of the U.S. Chess Federation, and he has been the Chess Journalist of the Year twice in both 2000 and 2016. Currently, he is a columnist for both Chess Life and Chess Life Kids. He writes the Faces Across the Board column in Chess Life and the Chess Kids Across the Board column in Chess Life Kids. He's our first three-time guest. He was our May guest for the U.S. Amateur Team East Story in May and in November for the U.S. Open. Since this is episode 12 of our podcast, he has been our guest 25% of the time. Those other two stories were both tournament reports about two of our largest and most important events. This March cover story is about Dwayne Barber and goes in a completely different direction. It's a more intimate portrait of an individual. To give some context, let me read the opening of the article. On a Sunday afternoon in July 2018 at a hotel ballroom just outside of Madison, Wisconsin, U.S. chess delegates from states all over the country stood up at the same moment and applauded. The standing ovation indicated a unanimous vote, conferring an honor never before bestowed in the century and a half of organized American chess. The delegates had just awarded Dwayne Barber the title of Dean of Scholastic Chess. So, Al, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for that introduction. And everybody should know the secret of my uh, uh, repeated appearances is my uh, cheap price. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, that's a good time for us to remind everybody we are a nonprofit organization, so we come by our cheap our cheap rates honestly. Goodness, everything's a segue, right? <laughs> so, 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 you know, you were you were reading that introduction uh, to the article, and, and it is such an important moment in our history. You know, it's uh, as you read, it was the first time ever that U.S. Chess uh, made this designation. You know, we've had deans before deans of chess, but not a dean of scholastic chess. And it's, an, it's a, a revolution that's been a long time coming. Um, it's, it's interesting that Dwayne himself, as one of the people who, who led this evolution, revolution of scholastic chess, which, which really changed and widened the world of uh, U.S. chess, that he actually uh, was one of the key people, in fact, a key person, in um, uh, bringing recognition to scholastic organizers. You know, about 1990, he was the first one actually to um, get U.S. chess to put on their award list uh, awards for uh, scholastic organizing. So uh, it's it's both ironic and logical. 
to see him uh, really elevated to this very deserved title. You know, absolutely. It was definitely a moving moment for anybody that was in that uh, delegates meeting. And Dwayne himself was obviously very moved by it. From time to time, I, I like to talk about uh, journalism specifically, as this, uh, since this podcast goes uh, specifically about chess life. Um, you typically write tournament reports for, for the magazine. Uh, talk about a little bit of the journalistic challenges of a profile piece versus a tournament report. I don't think it's as straightforward as listeners may think it is. Uh, no, it isn't. And, and you know, uh, uh, I had some practice at this uh, with some other pieces. Um, but, but this was the, uh, the largest challenge. And, you know, one of the challenges, it's again, uh, kind of an irony. I, I've known, um, Dwayne Barber for so long, um, that I, that I wanted to make sure, um, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't just going to be from rote, you know? Uh, so we made a point of, uh, a meeting he lives in, in, uh, near, you know, near Los Angeles. I, I live near New York. And so we flew into where else but uh, St. Louis, the capital of U.S. Jazz, for uh, for two days of face-to-face interviewing. Because I, I really wanted to uh, follow up on the nuance, uh, see his expression, uh, you know, see see how he recalled uh, key moments of his past, um, uh, you know, live. Uh, and, and so it was very interesting. I've known him since the 1980s and I, I go over, um, how we met and some of the things we did together in the 1980s, but, and, and I've kept in touch through the U S chess, uh, uh, and through U S chess trust, uh, with Dwayne, uh, frequently. Uh, but I learned new things. Uh, and, uh, I had even, <laughs> even though I had a high bar of respect and admiration, I have to say it, uh, that bar even rose, you know, it, uh, it, it, it was definitely the best move I made on the piece. Now, as far as uh, writing a tournament report and, and writing a profile uh, on somebody receiving an honor like this, you know, uh, the challenge here is uh, sorting out um, uh, the, the really relevant things in a person's life that uh, has led them uh, to um, the honor. Uh, doesn't happen in a day. You want you want to get at the source of it. How did he get started? What 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 were the uh, uh, the cornerstones and the landmarks along the way? So we're dealing with a lot of history, and that's that's one of the biggest differences to answer your question. So of the uh, the the new things that you learned, what was probably the most surprising thing you, know, you learned? You know, I I didn't uh, know about because <laughs> because he's so tight lipped about his own generosity. I didn't know that everything uh, I knew about his very successful business. You know, um, uh, it was a uh, chess uh, retailing business, um, and and I didn't know that early on, uh, both he and his wife Sue who's, of course, central to the whole story, um, decided, they were, both, they were both school teachers, that any money they made from that business uh, would go back into chess. I didn't know that. The, I knew that the last year before he sold the business, uh, American Chess Equipment, um, that their gross was uh, half a million dollars. Um, so obviously there's a there's a there's a profit margin there that goes back into chess that's pretty enormous because uh, he had the business uh, for decades. And 
another thing that I, I guess I knew, but it wasn't in the forefront of, um, you know, understanding his business. I, I, I figured that, you know, like a lot of businesses, he started in the garage and then he moved to some warehouse. He did this all in a, in a three car garage for all these decades. Um, so he, he was, he had a lot of acumen as a, as a business person. One of the, one of the funny things, uh, uh, I learned was that he couldn't park his cars, his cars, he, either he or his wife couldn't park his car, their cars in the garage for like 25 years. They had, they had to stay in the driveway because the, the garage was, of course, full of the equipment. That makes one wonder if uh, the history of scholastic chess might have been different if he had lived in a cold weather climate instead of uh, sunny uh, California. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think there's two things about that I'd react to. One is he, uh, he was part of the fuel for the explosion of scholastic chess because it, um, younger people don't understand now there wasn't equipment. You couldn't get a, uh, you couldn't get a program going because you couldn't get official equipment. Uh, and he was one of the people uh, that uh, uh, provided that nationwide. The other thing I'd say is even if he lived in a cold climate, uh, I think Dwayne's going to figure out a way to do it. He's put an extra heater in the ground. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. Um, let, let me pick up on the journalism thread again. Tell listeners what your journalist background is. You know, I, uh, I'm very proud uh, that I went uh, to the University of Missouri after the Army and attended the University of Missouri Journalism School, uh, which uh, uh, that's Mizzou. That's in Columbia, Missouri. A lot of people don't know that uh, it's most often ranked the number one or number two journalism school uh, in, in, uh, in the U.S. So uh, uh, I actually began then uh, doing other kinds of writing and uh, eventually, you know, uh, went into uh, teaching for a while before coming to uh, uh, U.S. Chess as managing director of, uh, of Chessline uh, and did that for a while before I uh, started uh, uh, Working upstairs as the as one of as one of the assistant directors uh, to the late Jerry Delay. Um, and while this will be old news by the time this podcast airs on March fifth, it's brand new news today. Uh, and you may not have even heard this out, but uh, the University of Missouri has announced that they are going to now have a college chess team uh, coached by Grandmaster Christian Trilla. I, I knew that was in the works. I, I suspected that was the announcement he was going to make today. But you're right. I hadn't heard it officially. But, yes, I'm very proud of that. I think that's uh, another wonderful a contribution that has to be from you-know-who, uh, Rex Sinkfield, I would imagine. Uh, yes, and he is mentioned in the press release as well. And, you know, uh, I, I think at least he used to have a place in Columbia and uh, – his son lives in Columbia, Missouri. That's the location for Mizzou. For many of our readers, I'm sure that uh, the whole concept of a dean of American chess or a dean of scholastic chess is a new concept. They may not be familiar a bit with our chess history. And so I want to dive in a little bit to uh, what's a sidebar in this story and will you discuss all four previous deans of American chess. Of course, there was never a dean of scholastic chess before, as we've as we've already mentioned. So let me let me uh, quote from each uh, 
Dean's section in your sidebar, and you can tell us what you know personally. I know one you you do not you you're not old enough to have known personally, so you can just, you can just yeah. I think I'm old enough to know him, but I I didn't move into the to the east. You know, I'm a Midwesterner. I was a Nebraska school teacher, and and I didn't move in the east uh, early enough in my life to meet the first dean. But but I knew the other three. Go ahead. Okay, so the very first one is Herman Helms, who was named dean in 1943 when our organization was uh, uh, only four years old. Uh, Helms was a central figure in organizing the great New York tournaments of 1924 and 1927. He wrote the New York Times chess column for 50 years, as well as columns for the Brooklyn Eagle for 60 years. So, Al, expand a little bit on Herman. One of the great stories uh, that I like, you know, and I, I, I retell it, uh, this, this piece of history that's almost irresistible. Um, um, you, you know, Helms was writing uh, for the Brooklyn Eagle, and, and he received in the mail um, a letter uh, from uh, turned out to be Bobby Fisher's mom uh, saying, you know, little boy, and he's getting interested in chess. Where can he play? And uh, um, uh, Herman Helms uh, famously wrote back, uh, you know, uh, uh, bring your uh, bring your little chess playing boy to the Brooklyn Public Library next Wednesday evening at eight o'clock where he might find someone there about his own age. Uh, and I think, of course, uh, given uh, what happened with Fisher's pr- uh, prominence and world championship, that's a ironic uh, piece of chess history that who knows, you know, what, what would have happened. Uh, Bobby might have persevered, but uh, regardless, but that was certainly the leg up, you know, for uh, Bobby Fisher. Only one of the things that uh, Herman Helms uh, uh, is remembered for and very deservedly our first dean. Um, that, uh, that, that reply from Helms is, I, I kind of view it as our chess version of the Yes, Virginia, There is a Santa Claus story. <laughs> yes, that's that's a good connection. You know, I should say also, he, you know, he was a par- he was a powerful player uh, as well. But, um, uh, you know, organizing and writing. Uh, in fact, um, I think it was uh, Arnold Denker, a later dean who who called him, who called Helms the most important chess journalist. In U.S. history. And after Helms died in 1963, it was a full decade before U.S. chess named another dean. And this time it was Grandmaster George Koltanowski, a former U.S. chess president, who dazzled audiences with his blindfold chess, Knight's Tour, and other feats of chessboard-related memory. And now we're getting into deans that you knew personally. Yes. And, and you know, George Koltanowski is um, one of those people like John Collins that I have in my memory. I can't remember a time or a or anything they said uh, that was hurtful or unencouraging. Uh, and of course, um, George was, he became president of the U.S. Chess Federation. Um, and he was very well known for his uh, books on the Coley uh, opening system. Um, there's um, a funny story I'd like to tell about that. I'll try to give you a quick version of it. You know, he was very famous for being so obliging. If somebody had his word book, he'd, he'd sign it. Um, you know, Steve Doyle, uh, long before he was USCF president, was a, a young guy in uh, New Jersey, lived, still living at home, I think maybe even before college. But he was very active, always a promoter, Steve. And uh, he had uh, George uh, stay at the family home while George was giving some exhibitions in, in uh, uh, famous, his famous blindfold exhibitions uh, in New Jersey. Uh, well, George Koltanowski was a insomniac. And he got up, I don't know, two, three in the morning, everybody's asleep. He goes downstairs, 
He sees a bookcase full of chess uh, books. And he sees his book. It's in his, one of his books there on a colon. He gets it out and he signs it and he puts it back. Well, months later, months later, Steve finds this and is disappointed because George has signed so many books that it's more, they're more valuable if they're unsigned. <laughs> uh, that, that is funny. So, but, but, you know, he, besides being a, a sweet, brilliant guy, I got to mention the uh, much of the, uh, I, I think U.S. Chess Federation would have taken extra decades to develop to the point uh, uh, where it is now uh, with, without uh, George, because, you know, he's the guy that brought the Swiss system. Uh, to give you an example, the U.S. Open used to be uh, eliminations or it used to be in sections. They couldn't figure out how to have large tournaments. Well, George uh, brought the Swiss system over to the U.S. and actually was the director who went around, barnstormed around the country and used it in the first U.S. Open, among many other tournaments, and showed people that hundreds of people could show up and we still have a system to make a winner and class winners. Um, and just try to think about what the the uh, um, membership of the U.S. Chess Federation would be if, if we never got that step in. So enorm- enormous and uh, personally very magnetic. If, if you haven't seen a video of one of his shows, it's just amazing. Um, not only would he do this nights to a blindfold, but the first thing he would do would be to take a piece of information from 60, uh, 64 people in the, ro- in the room would be like your uh, you, it'd be a social security number, your phone number, your address when you were five years old, the name of your pet, whatever. And as he, uh, then he'd write it down on the board, then he'd put a blindfold on, then he'd turn his back. And instead of just saying night to E5, he would say night to E5, which is 49460322 social, uh, Emily's social security number. It was amazing. Well, while that's a great story, it's also somewhat discouraging since if I didn't have my notes in front of me right now, I would have already forgotten what the March cover story is. I'm sorry, who was this? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so a few years after Colty's death in 2000, U.S. Chess gave the honor of Dean American Chess to Grandmaster Arnold Denker, the former U.S. champion who made the call to Dwayne Barber to do something for the kids, leading Dwayne to establish the Grandmaster Arnold Denker Tournament of High School Champions. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I have even uh, more uh, face-to-face memories with, with Arnold. You know, he, of course, was a former U.S. champion, um, and he was um, <laughs> literally uh, an important uh, voice in U.S. chess for, for decades. You know, he, uh, he, I remember him in his straw hat. I remember coming, him, his coming over to the uh, World Chess Hall of Fame in Miami frequently go to lunch. And I remember that uh, stentorian voice of his, you know, when when he, uh, he even as an, uh, an old guy, even older than, than I am, he was a towering, straight, standing figure. And when, when he smoked, spoke, um, it, it was impossible <laughs> not to give uh, total credence to whatever he was saying. He was quite a, le- he's quite a leader. And uh, and uh, another central person in, in our development. And in your article, uh, in, in the main feature, uh, how important he was to Dwayne is also very clear. And, and it was an out-of-the-blue call. I mean, they weren't, they weren't buddies. Um, Denker, just uh, Grandmaster Denker, uh, just had a, uh, 
I think, a wonderful sense of uh, who would get things done. Right. And he'd, see, he'd seen Dwayne in action and, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, in his uh, in, in Dwayne's advocacy for uh, uh, scholastic chess. And he knew he had the right guy. So Denker died in 2005. And at that time, U.S. Cho- chess chose Grandmaster Arthur Bisgeier and, as another tireless promoter of the game to inherit the mantle of Dean of American Chess. Right. And, of course, I, I, I worked with... Uh, uh, I, I I worked with uh, biscuits as as we often called them uh, for for years. Uh, uh, when I was uh, managing director of Chess Life, he was the uh, grandmaster consultant who was in the office right there with us. Um, and uh, you, you know, talk about a tireless promoter. I think that's something all the deans had in common, um, and certainly have uh, uh, c- certainly have in common with uh, Dwayne Barber. Is that um, you know their so much of their life was dedicated to promoting uh, our game, um, and uh, um, Grandmaster Biscayer was certainly uh, one of the um, best liked grandmasters, most affable. Uh, everybody could call him by his nickname. Everybody could ask him what, what what's a better move that I made. Uh, as he played in endless Swiss tournaments, so um, it, it's a little bit hard <laughs> to, to to talk about him. You know, he's passed away, as you know. So um, I certainly have very fond memories of him. So, uh, is there any story behind his nickname Biscuits beyond the the similarity to Bisgeier? That is certainly something I should know. Uh, I know that in his thermos um, there wasn't biscuits. <laughs> He uh, he always had a thermos um, with him at tournaments and uh, didn't smell always like coffee. You know? <laughs> but I'm sorry. I don't know. I'm going to research the biscuits, okay? Because somebody will know. Somebody listening will know how that name came about. Yes, and if you do know. You know, the very, the very famous, you know, the one story that illustrates his great sportsmanship is uh, early on when he was playing Fisher, you know, bis- you know, this guy was, uh, uh, you, you know, he's U.S. champ and one of the strongest players uh, we've ever had, one of the most successful. And he was playing Fisher in the early days, and Fisher uh, fell asleep at the board uh, uh, when it was Fisher's move. And uh, this is a very important tournament. And, uh, you know, mm- Grandmaster Biscayer leaned over the table, woke him up, and proceeded to lose. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder now if poking your opponent awake is would be considered disturbing your opponent or not. Uh, I think that would always be considered good sportsman. <laughs> I, I agree. And uh, Biscayer was also the only dean that I knew personally, and mm. I, I can I had this similar impression because I, I met him when I was only a volunteer in the Georgia Chess Association, and he was a counselor at the Emory Castle Chess Camp in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, and he was so welcoming to me. Um, and he was, uh, he was just a very genuine, genuine spirit. And the story that I wrote about in Chess Life after he died, uh, that just shows how much he loved the game, is he had showed me a game of one of his students um, the first year I met him. And then the second year I met him, he, he, when he saw me, he just grabbed me by the elbow, pulled me to a table. I've got to show you this variation from that game I showed you last year. Wow. And it, it, and it was a fantasy variation from that game. And, and this was a 1,500 players game, but he had, it had stuck with him and he had analyzed it in great depth. So that, uh, it, it's hard to imagine that depth of level of, 
of love of chess. He'd come back from a tournament when we worked on Chess Life, and he maybe he lost a game to somebody very good, and he would be very silent for a few hours before he worked out what he did wrong, and then he'd be normal again. I, I've got to tell you a story you can cut out. I know we might be running long on this section, but um, I was having lunch with Jerry DeLay, uh, Jerry Hankin, who I think you may remember, um, a very important guy in U.S. chess, now passed away, and uh, um, and Grandmaster Biscayer. We were having lunch at the Valesgate Diner. Um, Jerry Hankin um, got into a uh, very challenging intellectual debate about something in chess with Grandmaster Biscayer. Um, and Grandmaster Biscayer happened at that time to have a stroke. And uh, I, I was the one that took him to the hospital. Uh, I'm waiting in uh, the waiting room, and they call me in a few hours uh, to come in. Um, he's behind the curtain. The nurse says, it's okay to talk to him. He's okay now. And um, she takes back the curtain. And I said, hey, Art, how you doing? He said, I know I can give Hank and stroke odds. <laughs> and, and that actually word for word happened. <laughs> so just uh, an amazing wit as well as everything else. Yes, yes. Well, listeners, it's time for our best question contest. And please remember, if you ever have a question for our guests, um, you can always write to us at podcast at uschess.org. Uh, your chances to win a $50 gift certificate to USCF Sales. USCF Sales is the official chess shop of the U.S. Chess Federation. U.S. Chess Sales is the largest chess retailer in the United States. From chess books, software to DVDs, from chess pieces to clocks to computers, U.S. Chess Sales is your complete one-stop chess shop. With over 5,000 items in stock, it offers same-day shipping and a low price guarantee. Find it cheaper at any specialty chess retailer, and they will gladly match them. Shop today at www.uscfsales.com. And the winner of this month's question, and this is becoming kind of a running joke for me and that I'm unable to pronounce names properly here, so I'm going to do the best I can. It comes from Bradley Jua Perry from Charlotte, North Carolina. And his question, Al, kind of speaks to the scholastic chess theme we've been talking about. As an adult beginner chess player, I have played many matches against scholastic students, some of who are now hundreds of points higher than me after being similarly rated just a year earlier. Aside from time and practice, are there any concepts or ideas more palatable uh, for scholastic players than adults that would accelerate their rating curve? Well, you know, uh, I didn't understand exactly the last point of the question. Was it uh, how to accelerate the, the, the kids' ratings? No, it's, it's how to uh, approve as a, an adult uh, okay. player. Uh, okay, well, I, I'm going to give you the best piece of advice I've ever heard on this because we all suffer from this, right? And that's from one of the deans, Grandmaster Biscayer. He summed it up by saying, beat them while they're babies. <laughs> and really, you know, uh, what we have to do is we have to realize – that the youngsters have had tens of thousands of hours of practice online that we never had if you're if you're as old as I am, and I think um, um, the the advice that a lot of teachers would give is simply take them to the ending if you can, because it seems to be the last uh, mature part of a person's game. So study the endings, uh, try to get to an ending. Uh, I've been there and done that, by the way, 
Um, and uh, there is a lot of truth to it. And we had a second question that's uh, kind of on a um, – that's – Related. So uh, it comes from Wayne Gamble. Thank you for your question, Wayne. Um, He says, I've noticed that a lot of notable GMs started playing chess when they were children. So my question is, if you're already an adult when you learn chess, is it still possible to become a GM? Well, you know, realistically, uh, um, I I think it would be. It's always a combination. Anything is always a combination of talent and uh, desire and practice, right? So uh, if you're greatly talented, um, and say you're in your, your 20s and you've never really studied chess and you got together with a high-level coach, I wouldn't rule out the possibility. Um, but, but I think, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it would be extraordinary. Um, nowadays, um, you, you know, you, the earlier the better. I mean, nowadays we're talking about four-year-olds. Um, certainly it used to be. You know, uh, some years ago, uh, you, you, you'd hear stories about people who started pretty late and got very good. I wouldn't be discouraging about it. Now, somebody in their 40s or 50s, I would say, you know, uh, don't definitely don't quit your day job. Yes, right. And another way I've heard this put is that uh, chess is very much like learning a language. And, you know, children's brains are so much more malleable when it comes to learning languages. Yeah. And, and a key landmark is, is uh, whatever the coincidences are and the biology is, is, is uh, puberty. Uh, kids before puberty can pick up languages very fast. Um, I think they learn chess very fast. And, and after that age, it's, it's more difficult for all humans. Yes. Yeah. So uh, as we are in our 80th anniversary year, I, I want to close with a, a question that speaks, speaks to that. Uh, the day after this podcast airs, uh, starting tomorrow on March 6th, a major exhibition opens at the World Chess Hall of Fame, which is part of the St. Louis Chess Campus that includes the St. Louis Chess Club. The exhibit's titled U.S. Chess, 80 Years, Promoting the Royal Game in America, and it will be on display through October 26, 2019. Listeners, to find out more details about this exhibition, please visit the website worldchesshof.org. I'm sorry. I just want to make sure I, I feel like we should say a few more, few more things about the subject we're talking about here, which is Dwayne Barber. May I, may I kind of sum up a little bit? Sure. Go ahead. Okay. You know, um, in, in uh, one of your earlier questions, you know, I was holding off saying, well, you know, what, what did you find out? What, what's your overall Im- impression, I suppose, of a person just summed up in some words? And I would say, first of all, he's a pioneer, Dwayne Barber. Uh, we owe him a lot in that respect. Uh, he's an extremely generous benefactor through the, uh, through the U.S. Chess Trust. He supports the Barber Tournament, um, pays the bills. He's a showman. If you've ever been to one of his uh, um, um, important uh, receptions and closing ceremonies, and he's a meticulous planner. He's a combination of uh, skills, and then you add to that, he's a bulldog. I call him a gentle bulldog. Uh, he, he's never rude. He, he's he's never loud, uh, but he never gives up. So uh, I did want to recap uh, the main subject of our talk. Thanks for letting me do that. Oh, you're welcome, and, and, and thank you for sharing that. What I'm asking with when I'm talking about our 80th anniversary is, you know, U.S. chess has been a significant part of your life. As we're looking back at this, uh, at 80 years of U.S. chess, tell us a little bit about what the Federation has meant to you personally. Oh, you know, I was executive director during the 50th and, and the 55th anniversaries. 
Um, and, and long before uh, I was uh, in chess administration, you know, I was uh, um, a high school uh, chess um, sponsor. Um, I, I, I did one of the old uh, national uh, uh, phone league um, um, teams from Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, it, it, uh, I, 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 I played in uh, some of the really big Pan Ams when I was at the University of Missouri. But what it meant to me was it was always a source I could go to, whatever else was going in my life, I could go to and, and get that uh, calm, uh, contemplative mood, I guess. Other people do it with, with other means, you know, uh, uh, oh, but that's what worked for me. Um, and, and I met the most interesting people, whatever chess club I was at. Uh, what a mixture, what an egalitarian mixture of people we have. You know, you go to the, I remember going to the chess club in, in uh, New York City about the first time that I was ever in New York. And it was always very exciting. And um, one, one fellow asked another player, what should I do here? Later, I found out it was a CEO asking a janitor. That's literally true. And that, that um, um, you know, that, that reflects part, part of the chess culture. Um, of course, I've always been more interested in the history and the people of chess, I suppose, I think that's fair to say, uh, than the actual moves on the board. Of course, I love those as well. I'm curious, when since there are so many clubs in New York City over the years, what, what club specifically was that that you visited? Well, that, that was the old uh, club in Carnegie Hall when uh, the club is no longer there. Right, it's the 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 man. It was the uh, Manhattan Chess Club. Right, uh, and it was, uh, I believe, uh, our, our friend uh, uh, Bruce was the manager in those days. Uh, yes, Bruce Pandolfini. He absolutely yes. was. Well, Al, uh, once again, you know, you've been a most interesting guest. Thank you so much for your work on this fascinating story. I, I, I'm sure listeners and readers are going to really enjoy it. Um, so It was my honor to do it. I appreciated the assignment very much. And as we close out our first year of Cover Stories with Just Life and look towards our second year, I can't promise that you'll be our guest 25% of the time again, but I'm sure you'll be on again. <laughs> it's always my, my pleasure and my honor. Thank you, Al. Bye-bye. Thank you. So listeners, now is the time when we normally would have our Checking In with Jen segment. But as you now know, Jen has her own podcast, Ladies Night. And since she's doing that and can speak to other uh, digital issues uh, and women's issues on that podcast, we're starting a new segment this month called The Skittles Room. And in The Skittles Room, we will talk about anything that may be of interest to Chess Life readers and podcast listeners. And bringing up this very first segment is John Hartman, our brand new digital editor. John, welcome to the Skittles Room. Thanks for having me. John, you have been a longtime book columnist for Chess Life. The new title of your, uh, your, your column is Books and Beyond that we introduced in January. And also, coincidentally, this month, you happen to be our My Best Move subject. Tell, you know, in, introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, sure. Well, um, again, yeah, my name is John. I am uh, the new digital editor for U.S. Chess Online. Uh, as Dan just told you, I've been doing the book review column for Chess Life for, goodness, four or five years now, um, for which I was fortunate to win the Best Column Award from the Chess Journalists of America 
the award is proudly sitting in my daughter's room because she thought it was pretty. <laughs> so uh, I'm also the president of the Nebraska State Chess Association. Um, I teach locally, and I facilitate the chess club at Brownell Talbot. So shout out to the BT Raiders. And un- until you got this job this month, you were also uh, the chairman of the U.S. Chess uh, communications committee. Uh, you now because of our um, our governance structure, you do have to step down from that. But you did a lot of good work there as well. Tried to do my best. Tell our listeners a little bit about our print versus digital sides. You know, as you are a digital editor, and you'll be posting a lot of stories. Uh, we, we certainly solicit ideas from our listeners, and they can reach you at john.hartman at uschess.org. Two ends at the end of john.hartman. Um, but what makes a good story for our website versus a story that would be good for Chess Life magazine? So this is something I'm still trying to formulate uh, for myself. But my sense of things is that when we're talking about the modern media landscape, print media should be the story of record, right? So uh, when, when a story about, for example, the Karen's Cup, which is going on right now, uh, when that appears in Chess Life, it should be definitive and have critical distance built into it and annotations and photos and all the wonderful things that you expect every month uh, as part of your magazine. When we're writing for the web, um, we have to be a little quicker and we uh, have to try to focus a little more on the here and now. So stories that go up, for example, the first two that I've written about the Karen's Cup have been uh, trying to, to really sort of get the information out quickly uh, add the the critical bits that I can, the sort of uh, perspective that I can, but knowing that really the, the perspective comes in later, and that's the work of the the authors who are going to be writing these stories up for Chess Life. Exactly. And, you know, one way I've always put it, and perhaps inelegantly, is that when we need it quick, we put it on the web. And when we want to have a lot of very considered thought, it, it goes in print. Um, but that that's really understating and undervaluing the good quality content that we have on Chess Life Online. Yeah. And I, I think there's the nice thing about the web, uh, besides the fact that there are word limits, which for someone who likes to write and or talk like I do, that's a, it's, it's a comfort. Um, we can experiment with a lot of other things that, that may not be suitable for the, the journal of record for U.S. Chess. So one of the things that I'm going to be bringing to the website every Thursday is our uh, Throwback Thursday feature where we mine the archives of uh, Chess Life magazine or Chess Review uh, and try to find things like you know uh, well-annotated, beautiful games by... Uh, great players of the past that we may have forgotten about. So uh, Ruben Fine annotating a game, or uh, Gligorik, or Paul Keres. But we, we have all this material, and it's uh, something that should be accessible to people, so we're going to try to bring some of that out. Things like photographs. Uh, we have troves of photographs of famous players. Uh, to, so trying to bring uh, some some of the past back to the web, I think, is, is, a, is a nice feature that, that makes sense in, in, uh, in a web format. Yeah, no, that sounds wonderful. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. So I look forward to that. Let's let's talk about your other two uh, print efforts in this month's issue. Uh, in your Books and Beyond column, you look at a new book by Joel Benjamin. Correct. Uh, I take a look at Joel Benjamin's book, Better Thinking, Better Chess. I really hope I didn't just botch that title. That would be very embarrassing. Um, but uh, it's it's certainly one of my favorite books in recent months. I think it's pitched perfectly for a player who is trying to improve their in-game thought processes. Uh, the examples are 
very well suited for class players, and uh, Joel is an excellent writer. So I, I think it's a, it's a great book, and hopefully we're going to have an interview with him to put up on the web as a companion piece as uh, as March uh, rolls around. Oh, so great. We're, we're going to have some synergy between some of the things we do in the magazine and some of what will appear on the web. And I, I think I'd like to give a shout out to our um, uh, fellow podcaster, Ben Johnson. I believe recently uh, Joel was on his show talking about this book as well. He was. And actually, one of the questions I'm going to ask him in the interview, uh, hopefully, well, I shouldn't say hopefully he's not listening, but uh, I, I don't want him to get a, a ahead of himself when it comes to answering this question. He, he said something on the podcast that I thought was interesting about his, his book vis-a-vis uh, Mark Dvoretsky's work. And so I'm going to try to plumb that or uh, poke around that a little bit to see if I can tease out more of what he meant. And if listeners want to learn more about you yourself, you also were a guest on Ben Johnson's uh, Perpetual Chess podcast. I was just over one year ago. Uh, well, just over one year ago, I recorded that episode. And Ben is doing amazing work. The podcast, if you haven't heard it, is is something that you should certainly add to your list of things that you need to check out. It's It's always nice when I'm at a tournament and randomly someone will come up to me and say, hey, I heard you on the podcast and I really like what you had to say. Or, hey, you hated a book that I really love and you should be uh, banished. Or you know, they, they don't really say that, but sometimes they, uh, they, they get a little heated. And uh, I appreciate that too, because you know, if, if you're getting a reaction from people when you're writing something, I think that's, uh, that's really why we write. That's really what we're trying to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. And your your other um, contribution to this month was the My Best Move column. You were you were tapped by editor Melinda Matthews to write that before you were going to be an employee of U.S. Chess. We typically don't put employees in that column, um, so you got in just under the wire, John. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that will be the uh, the only time I will be eligible for this is is uh, before. So. Hopefully I don't screw things up too badly so that I could be eligible again. My Best Move has proved to be one of our most popular uh, columns in Chess Life, so um, I'm, I'm glad you were able to contribute. It was uh, it was nice to get to show off a game that I was uh, pretty proud of, even if the all final result didn't turn out the way I wanted. Yeah. So, John, thank you for joining us. I'm sure we'll be talking again over the months and coming years. Perfect, Dan. Thanks for having me. And um, please, everybody... Uh, do me a favor and take a look at uschess.org and see all the great things we're going to be doing in the upcoming months. Fantastic. Bye, John. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the March edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month when we will be talking to Grandmaster Robert Hess, who is writing our cover story about Karo Nakamura's win in the London Chess Classic of the Grand Chess Tour. Make sure to listen to our other U.S. Chess podcasts, which include One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, Ladies' Nights, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month and is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi. And I'm pleased to announce that coming later this month on the fourth Tuesday, the introduction of Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karianis. Thank you and good chess.